Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues and our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Our guest today is Professor Sir Tim Besley. He is the W. Arthur Lewis Professor of, of Development Economics at the London School of Economics and Political Science, the LSE. He's also a member of the National Infrastructure Commission and for 2018, the president of the Econometric Society. Uh, he's one of the most prominent economists when it comes to political economy and development related issues. And it's really great for us to invite him um, to the studio today. It's such a great honor to have you on our show. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Besley. Well, thank you, Tiger. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so you're giving a talk this Thursday at Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. Um, the talk is titled State Fragility, Growth, and Development. Uh, would you mind giving us a quick overview of your talk? Uh, and what do those terms like state fragility mean? Okay, well, let me tell you a little bit of the origins of, uh, of, the, um, of the title of the talk, which refer back actually to a commission that I was involved in setting up with Paul Collier um, in uh, 2017. We first had the idea. And uh, uh, we, we feel, uh, we're feeling very strongly that um, there were many issues that, that involved the states in the world that were really struggling to get onto a good development path and, uh, and that we needed some, a way of galvanizing thinking around uh, what would be the right approach um, for, to, to putting them on a better footing. Um, the, the history being that um, particularly development organizations, the World Bank and IMF, didn't really seem to have a distinctive strategy for dealing with fragile states. So we invited our former prime minister, David Cameron, to be the chair of the commission. We invited a range of people, um, some academics, uh, actually Jennifer Widener from the politics department here at Princeton was a member of the commission, and then people with genuine practical experience, investors and policymakers to join us and to come up with what we thought would be a useful, practically oriented um, uh, set of proposals to deal with the problems. So coming back to your, your, your question, though, state fragility. Um, state fragility is essentially um, the flip side of state effectiveness. That's not an answer to what state fragility is. But if you think about what the modern state does effectively in a range of countries, it delivers public goods to its citizens. Uh, it provides law and order. It uh, um, handles. Um, uh, state society relations to prevent conflict. It um, raises tax revenue to fund public services. It does a whole range of things um, that contribute to the welfare and well-being of the citizens of those states. State fragility is the flip side of that. These are countries that are not providing law and order. These are countries that are not providing the infrastructure and support for the development of the private economy. They're not delivering effective uh, services to their citizens. And, uh, and, and uh, moreover, um, some states, which may be doing better or worse, look like there's a risk of regress. States that could lapse into conflict at any minute because the fabric of society is so fractured that even a small wrong turn or a shock could send these states back into a very uh, difficult place. Um, so we, th we think, and this was the subtext of our commission, um, that, the, that, that state fragility is a huge impediment to human progress in a range of societies, um, bad for growth and bad for development and well-being. Uh, and that's what the lecture is going to be about. What we, what we came up with both as the diagnostic, what are the, what are the fundamental problems that, that, that create 
these these state fragility, and, and I, I can go into that if you wish. The other being, you know, how can we change the way we engage as an international community and as academics with the particular issues that many countries um, face? But before I um, close on the, this this general overview, um, I should note that every country is different. Um, I, I don't know if you remember the the first line of Anna Karenina that all happy families are alike, all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. And so it is, I think, with uh, states in a, in a fragile situation. There is no sort of one-size-fits-all type solution. We've got to deal with specific countries and their needs and problems as we see them, not with some playbook that's been written and is going to be imposed in a kind of uniform way wherever we see it in the world. So what are some of the alternative solutions or specific policies or frameworks that you would like to use to look at those issues? Okay, so a couple of things I think that I'd like to draw out and I'll be talking about in my lecture at length. One is what we call the, the curse of Denmark. So it's very easy to look at a very successful state like Denmark and think of all the wonderful things that it does for its citizens and then to look at a country that isn't behaving like Denmark and say, oh, it's very easy um, all you have to do is look more like Denmark. And of course, that's entirely unhelpful, and any more than it would be if I had an ambition to win an Olympic gold medal. You show me a picture of, uh, uh, of an Olympic medalist running the 100 meters in 9.8 seconds and say, oh, you just need to be like this guy. Um, it, it, it's really not very useful to try and think in terms of the most successful states in the world and you have to emulate them. You've got to deal much more with the granular um, issues on the ground and think of incremental progress and think of things where you, you, you can actually make substantive progress. So there, again, it's going to be very country specific. You've got to look at the particular challenges and issues that a given state faces, but not bring with it a, a sort of long list of things. So if you take a, you know, a country that's very far away from Denmark, uh, South Sudan might be an example, or Yemen or wherever, to you, if you started to write down all the ways they're not like Denmark, you would have a very, very long list. If you then tried to turn that into a laundry list of, of reforms that you think that state should undertake, it would be a very long list. It would absolutely overwhelm any country with limited capacity for policymaking to be able to even know where to begin to start charting that path. So you've got to, you've got to, you've got to begin with very modest but achievable goals. You've got to realize that every reform, if it goes wrong, may have negative implications, not just for that reform, but for the sense of purpose for the society. So you've got to try and identify quick wins. Um, you've got to um, hopefully deliver them and build on them and convince people that you can make incremental progress. But one of the problems of many countries with lots of dimensions of fragility and lots of um, problems is you can very often be sucked back rather easily to where you started or even end up worse off than where you started. So you've got to be aware that um, you've got to keep the pressure on, keep the, keep the small steps and proposals there, not get obsessed by the long-term goals, but, but, but have a viable set of short-term goals with sufficient support and pressure to be able to deliver on those short-term goals and to keep those both realistic and evolve them ideally with a set of interests within a country that actually are responsible for delivering. The other, I think, major issue in terms of the international uh, um, engagement with countries is outsiders with expertise come in with their own list of things that a country has to do, 
probably very well thought through. But if these things are not owned by the countries concerned, it, 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 it creates this overwhelming sense that you're just imposing on us things that you want, not things that we have thought through or designed for ourselves. So there's some serious issues around the external environment and, um, uh, and the kinds of priorities that donors might place on countries, which we also think is a, is a sort of problematic side of the engagement the international community has with fragile states. I just want to quickly follow up with uh, this idea of in international communities engaging with fragile states, because I, I think there seems to be a backlash in our society today against this notion of Western help, right? Like mm -hmm. Americans go to Africa and help the communities there. And, and now we're supposed to use phrases like we're there to support them and empower them instead of helping them. And I, I guess it's not just the semantics, but people really seem to be against any form of top-down approach. And we're all encouraging bottom-up uh, community-based work. Do you think um, that's a valid concern? That's a valid um, backlash against the previous years of traditional development methods that we've used? Uh, or do you think there is kind of some merit when it comes to top-down mandate approaches? So I would distinguish between two kinds of situations here. There's the sort of um, humanitarian interventions, which often take place after extreme events. They might be the kinds of interventions that happen uh, after floods or, uh, or other kinds of natural disasters. Um, for those, I think the imperative of international help is, uh, is correctly on solving a humanitarian problem. And there, almost certainly, local governments need very strong support from outsiders to, to deliver, at least in the short term, on alleviating the consequences of those um, serious shocks. Indeed, it's a sort of feature of fragile states that they often, even, even in normal times, don't have much capacity, but in times of humanitarian need, really don't have the capacity to deliver alone. So I think from, from, from that point of view, the, the case for um, a, a more top-down, structured, externally um, involved system of um, support is, I think, pr pretty strong. Where I think it's much more questionable is in relation to the longer-term engagements and how that's done effectively. Um, and, and, and there's no simple answers here, and, I'm, and certainly our report is not paddling simple answers. We're trying to, uh, and, and we can talk about this later, um, suggest that a different kind of engagement. But um, let, let me give you an example which I think presents a particular dilemma, and that's the use of non-governmental organizations to deliver public services uh, on a long-term basis, not, on, not in humanitarian contexts. That, of course, is entirely laudable to bring in people and funding, external funding often, to deliver schooling, health, um, to populations that have not got proper uh, access to those things. But the dilemma is the following. Um, you're not equipping the state to deliver that function. You're not, you're not building state-society relations in such a way as to allow citizens to think of themselves engaging with the state. They're paying their taxes. The state is providing public services in exchange for paying their taxes, the kind of social contract, if you want to call it that, that most effective, well-maintained states have. And you simply can't create that once you're having external support uh, as being the leading way of providing the services um, that, that people need. Um, and so on the one hand, you may be delivering excellent services and you may have good 
evidence-based approaches that say, you know, you do it this way versus that way, that's going to generate higher returns. But what you don't deliver on um, by sort of in a way circumventing the state is the fact that the long-run solutions have to be about building the state and making it more effective. The same, I make the same point vis-a-vis long-term peacekeeping initiatives. So if you think in Eastern Congo, there have been peacekeepers there for, I think, getting on for 18 years now, maybe 19 years, I can't remember the exact time period. And uh, effectively, they become a substitute for the creation of state-based law and order. They're international peacekeepers who are sent there to do a perfectly, a job that we would say is important, which is to keep the peace. But there's no real exit strategy or no building strategy that allows the state to come in and to start to deliver autonomously driven programs of security. So on the one hand, we're enabling, we're doing things as an international community that make the circumstances better. But on the other, we're not uh, often focused enough on building the the structures that will allow states themselves to start to effectively provide the services in place of these external actors. And I think that is one of the central dilemmas when you get a lot of external involvement. It's not colonialism in the old-fashioned sense, but but often people will refer to this as kind of neo-colonialism because the agenda is set externally, not by a single colonial power anymore, but by a set of external actors whose uh, perception of the needs of a society and a community are what really is driving the agenda in in that situation. And uh, again, without going all the way to saying we all want to be like Denmark, the fact is that what we know about state development is a key moment in state development is creating these um, uh, governments that are responsive and capable of being responsive to citizens' needs. And, uh, and, And to the extent that external intervention limits that dynamic process from taking place or inhibits it we have to we have to think more about the long term than just the short term and i worry sometimes that the the the, the border therefore between the, the the very real needs of humanitarian assistance and more long-term engagement where we have to think about how we're going to wind down external intervention to allow states to start to take up things is not being properly thought through so, so I was reading this uh, Brookings Institute report uh, that your colleague Paul Collier wrote about state fragility. It's called A New Approach to State Fragility. And it mentions how the future of development aid is about helping the least successful countries to catch up uh, with the rest of the world. There's this idea of catching up. You know, India, Indonesia, Brazil, most of the developing countries are, are broadly catching up, but a lot of the countries aren't. Um, and, and we were talking about this sort of top-down mandate. And, stuff, and that reminds me of this opinion that basically says um, – 50 years down the road when technology has advanced so rapidly, you know, we got AI or whatever, uh, that the developed countries would just be stronger and stronger and more prosperous. And it would basically be impossible for underdeveloped countries to catch up anymore because they don't have the resources or human capital to to develop something like AI or, or, um, you know, those incredibly advanced uh, technology services because it's not going to just be like cheap labor, export, and you grow. That that old development model will be outdated and it would just be impossible for the rest of the world to catch up, uh, countries like U.S. or China or, or Europe, if they don't catch up now. So, so I want to hear your thoughts on that opinion um, and, and how valid do you think that opinion is? Well, that's a very big issue. Uh, let, let me just 
before we get into AI, which I think is, is an, <laughs> an interesting issue and what the consequence might be of robotics and so forth, let's just think about the world as it, as it is today and the technology we have today. And, and I, I, say, I think I, I say with a reasonable degree of confidence um, that the capacities to roll out labor-intensive um, economic activity in countries is still there. I mean, uh, we're already beginning to observe very successful economies like China um, wages are rising and there's opportunities to outsource from China many of the things that were originally part of the early period of Chinese economic growth and I think that that process has some way to run potentially given the the amount of demand that can be created also um, there are natural resource issues around creating more demand in, in those countries but assuming that that, that can be handled um, there's a lot of demand to be created in um, getting what are currently unsuccessful economies growing rapidly and rolling out more labor-intensive um, manufacturing and labor-intensive services into those economies is something that's perfectly viable. I mean, let me give you a concrete example. It's not a sector that we all get very excited about, but the retail sector. Retail sector is one of our labor-intensive sectors. Um, well, say retail plus wholesale incredibly inefficiently run sectors in many parts of the world. You know, we don't even have the equivalent of supermarkets and large-scale distributors, which bring huge productivity gains and also employ large amounts of labor. There, there are, there's real potential in, in many economies to, uh, to roll out um, big efficiency improvements in labor-intensive sectors of the economy. Um, so I, I say with some confidence that that, that remains an option. But then your question quite rightly said, well, are we at a point in history where those sectors themselves, which are the large labor intensive sectors now in the US, the UK, or wherever you look, are they threatened by uh, technological change? And if they're threatened in advanced countries, then is that going to undermine things in, in less advanced countries? On that, I'm a little more sanguine, I think, is what would be the, the, the I guess, I was I hesitate to call it the popular view because you know you do there is a spectrum of opinion, but um, uh, the, and, and and there's no question or doubt that the uh, the AI slash robotics um, uh, revolution has a way to run, and we don't quite know where it will take us, even in the advanced countries. Um, but that there will be scope for creating new jobs, particularly for skilled people. Of course, we will face issues about many unskilled jobs being displaced. But if we upskill and uh, and respond to the new sectors that will be opened up by new technology, I think it'll be much less of a, of a, uh, a sort of negative scenario that some people paint. Um, and, e and, 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 and equally, that will be true for the opportunities that open up in the developing world to use those technologies. I think the barriers to using technology will be the same as they are now, lack of skills, because you can't operate frontier technologies without having the skills to support those technologies. And also um, uh, um, building the infrastructure and other things you need. You, you know, one, one of the things that so I said, I think you mentioned on the UK's National Infrastructure Commission, um, one of our concerns, and we've written a, a report on, on this relatively recently, is making sure you have the digital networks to support all the new technologies you're talking about. So even in advanced countries, you need to be sure that you, you stay abreast of the digital needs of the new economies that, that's going to emerge. So all of those things that we're going to have to have governments do, because it's unlikely that the market alone will be able to deliver effectively on all of those networks. 
Um, so, so again, state, if you have effective states in the developing world, they will be able to deal with many of these issues. The main problem comes back to that there are not effective states, states that can plan infrastructure, that can plan skills strategies to deliver the, 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 the underlying support you need for building an effective market economy. And that, just to, to finish off on this point, coming back to Paul's point, uh, Paul Collier's point that you cite uh, on, on his uh, new approach to fragility, I think what Paul is saying is if you have an effective state with ambition to build the skills and infrastructure, you can still um, uh, um, build uh, the, the kind of mass employment industries um, that some countries are on track to deliver, like Indonesia and Brazil and India, but you can roll that out much more widely. Uh, there are two terms um, in your paper, uh, fragile states and development policy, that you mentioned that really interested me, aid pessimist and aid optimist. Mm -hmm. um, and you say that the efficacy of aid totally depends on the aid agency's ability to understand the impacts in specific contexts. And I guess we were talking about engaging with the community. Uh, we were also talking about how technology won't so drastically disrupt everything. So w would you consider yourself an overall optimist or, or pessimist in, in those cases? I know it's kind of counterintuitive that I ask you this question at all, but uh, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on how we should think about whether we should be optimism, uh, optimistic or, or pessimistic when it comes to development issues. Well, okay, I, 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 I'll confess to being probably excessively optimistic about human progress in general, so you'll just have to bear with me on that. But why? Um, because I think with sufficient will and human ingenuity, there are solutions to many of the issues that we face, but they require long-term thinking and, um, and strategic interventions to anticipate many of the issues that we face. Um, and so... It, the, 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 the reason to be an, an aid pessimist or a development pessimist in general is to believe that there, there cannot be humanly devised solutions to these very major issues that we face that um, involve people realizing they've got to do things for the long term. There will be quick wins and you want to identify the quick wins, but the quick wins will inevitably be just on a path towards hopefully a more sustainable long-term solution. So I actually... I'm an optimist only because I believe in human capacity to, to organize for the collective good. And, and that's where I will sort of look at, I'm going to say I don't want to obsess about Denmark, but I'll look at the su successful societies and communities of the world. And they, they are manifestations of incredible human achievement that in, in large-scale societies we have solved um, how to provide mass health care to uh, to citizens, and then of course that's a challenge in, in the US in particular, and perhaps we don't want to get onto that, but in mo <laughs> most of the advanced world, um, some very amazing things have been done by human design, um, which have in enhanced well-being immeasurably, and I don't see why we can't continue to do that, provided we have the structures in place and the long-term thinking in place that the architects of those systems had, and I see nothing as fundamentally changed to make me into a wholesale pessimist, even though Coming back to where we started, state fragility, there are clearly places in the world where um, this is not on track, but we have to try and get that on track. And that's, you know, as, as, as economists, as citizens, that's one of our obligations to try and make things work better and to do our best even with whatever capacity we have to influence, which is, is probably quite limited, to at least 
play our role in, in pushing things forward. I, I totally get why you are optimistic, but I also see uh, no reason why we shouldn't be pessimistic. In, in a sense. I mean, the current political envir environment, um, I mean, for example, you were talking about humans' ability to organize themselves for the collective good, um, but we're also seeing political polarization, we're seeing fragmentation in the political spectrum, Brexit, um, the U.S. has this whole fight right now, I mean, about Trump, healthcare, immigration, all that stuff. Don't you think there's so many issues um, in our world today that are sort of arising from just the fact that humans can organize themselves and that, you know, back in the time when we were hunter-gatherers, it would have been a much happier society? Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> Let, let me add one thing, which you may or may not have known. So I gave a seminar in the political economy seminar in the economics department yesterday on some new research that I've been doing with Torsten Persson on the rise of identity politics and thinking exactly about the, the issues you're talking about. Is, is, is it the case that we're entering a new kind of political era? Now, there's been a huge amount written about this. Um, being able to identify the difference between a temporary blip and a long-term trend in this area is notoriously difficult. But there's enough out there, and I will agree with you on this, to, to, to be a major cause for concern that maybe some of the rules that we thought we were living by are being rewritten. Is, is it the case that social media is so disruptive to um, many aspects of political life, for example, the, the kinds of organizations and uh, um, propagation of um, uh, outgroup hostility that you get on social media could be deeply disruptive to the kinds of cohesive societies that we thought we were trying to build or society was trying to build, particularly in the post-Second World War era. And I would be the first to agree with you that um, these are cause for concern. But I think it's also notable, though, that, that, that what you might call the cosmopolitan elite against whom this is a backlash... <laughs> Um, are starting to um, get sufficiently concerned that they have got to find ways to respond to these issues. And I think one of the one thing that worries me, and I, I'll take the Brexit example because you raised it, um, uh, is that um, the initial reaction of um, the the kind of liberal elite, if you want to call them that, that were pro-Remain, predominantly pro-Remain was to want to brand um, those who voted against uh, remaining in the EU as xenophobes and, um, as, uh, and, and anti-immigrant and all manner of slogans like that, which was a totally unhelpful response. Rather than saying, well, you know, if, if, if they don't review the kind of society that we're trying to build as the kind of society they want to live in, we have to respond to their concerns. We have to think what it is that, about the way that society has been created that is is not suited to their needs and interests. And so at the end of it, the those who want to preserve those kinds of societies have, have an obligation to address the issues being faced by those who are uh, rebelling against those norms and values. And if it means that you know, becoming themselves more savvy unit users of social media or forming new political movements to try and preserve what we thought we were losing, um, there will have to be a kind of liberal backlash, not just a, an, an illiberal backlash against the kinds of societies. And I think the liberal elites will have to get more organized and have to project their values more with, with, with greater force than perhaps they have. I think they've been very passive in many countries to what is going on, and that's just fueled the fire. And many of the trends that are coming uh, are, are uh, I think, a manifestation of 
of a, uh, as I say, of a very passive um, approach among um, the traditional liberal elites or, or the emergent um, liberal elites. So does that make me more pessimistic? Well, only if I felt that that particular battle was going to be lost. But but again, you're, I think with sufficient careful analysis of what's going on um, uh, and responding to it in intelligent ways, we can um, pull society back to where we thought we were heading, which was a much uh, better path in the past and then the one we might be on now. But, but it's a path that's perfectly adjustable given the right kinds of policy interventions. Uh, do you see any inherent flaws to the current political systems or, or states that we're seeing today in the, in the Western developed countries? Because we've been talking about state fragility, how in a lot of underdeveloped countries, there's state ineffectiveness, political violence, all those sort of phenomenon. Are there any inherent shortcomings that you kind of observe um, in, our, in, the, in the political system that we currently live in that could potentially in a couple of decades lead to a, a fragile state? Well, I, I, yeah. If if some of the trends that you referred to earlier continue, then then they will be a, a course towards considerable political fragility. I mean, if you look in the east, so, so if you look at Hungary as an example, um, hung, Hungary has the potential to move towards a much more illiberal, or it is heading already to a much more liberal um, system. What, where might that lead? Could that lead to? serious state fragility if this trend continues then quite possibly yes i mean uh, it's too early to say it's it so f so far you know, there have been changes that that, that that have disturbed people um uh, within within a state like that actually inside the eu um so there is the potential for countries which we thought were firmly entrenched in the western liberal camp if you want to call it that to to move into into a very different place, um, but it's not inevitable. I think that's uh, quite what forms of change we're going to need to prevent that from happening. Um, it, again, going to be very country specific, but I don't I don't think we should view these as um, things that are necessarily beyond our control. But we they also need to be things that we are actively responding to and acknowledging as dangers. I think they're. It's because we acknowledge them as such that we have the potential not to be heading down that route. That said, the thing that we have to remind ourselves of is the construction of the kinds of post-war um, social contracts that we saw, particularly in Western Europe, where states took on a serious role in protecting their citizens, providing social insurance, providing health care. It's a very, very recent human contrivance. Um, you go back 100 years, there were no such states. Um, and so to say, oh, we've transitioned to some new world that is inevitably stable and will never revert, I think would be a very dangerous thing to believe. Um, so what should our mindset be when we talk about development issues uh, and state fragility? What's this overall framework that you, through which you look at things? And, and how do you recommend people like me who are not trained economists to, to look at those issues through a sensible lens. So the lens I become fond of, and uh, it may not surprise you given you, I know you're familiar with some of my work with, with Torsten Persson, is, is looking at this through the lens of state capacities. Um, that uh, compared, so, so when, I, when I learned economics, when I was probably just a little older than you are now, Tiger, I, I, um, I studied public policy. It was the thing I was really interested in. 
And we, we would look at you know, how taxes should be determined, how public goods should be provided, all sorts of core ideas in policy economics. Um, but we didn't really ask the question, well, how did a state ever become able to raise taxes? You know, we, we just allowed the state to, rate, to set the taxes it thought were wise taxes, but we never really asked that question very much. How did a state ever become competent in providing public goods or education or healthcare? We kind of took it for granted that should it choose to do that, it could do it. There was no discussion of what I would call the state capacities that lie behind that. But when you look at how states evolve, a huge amount of what states do is to create the structures and organizations to deliver. So if you want to have a tax system that, like the Swedes raises in excess of 40% of GDP in taxes, you've got to build structures, not just formal coercive structures, but also structures that facilitate voluntary compliance that allow, um, allow you to collect that revenue. And you simply can't take it for granted that if you wanted to become a 40% tax raising state, you could just say it's a matter of will. It's not a matter of will. It's a matter of building structures. And those structures often take time to build, particularly if they involve um, building social contracts where citizens comply with the state because they believe the state will reciprocate in the form of delivering public goods and services. So these things might not happen overnight, but you, you ultimately it is about having state capacities. Um, and those state capacities, we, we tend to talk, on, talk, talk in terms of three main dimensions. One is the capacity to raise taxes, which we call fiscal capacity. Uh, and also, of course, if you can raise taxes credibly, you can also raise debt and you can have a sensible system of public finances. Um, the capacity to regulate a market economy, because while the market economy may be an expression of entrepreneurialism and freedom and all the stuff that maybe we, we, we regard as important, it works within a framework of rules. And those rules uh, are in modern states set by government. So that means regulating competition, product safety, um, other forms of potential market abuse have to be dealt with. You can't build a successful market economy unless you unless you have those fundamentals. Of course, the other one is the enforcement of private property rights. That, that is fundamental to building a market economy, that people understand where their property rights are and, and have some recourse against someone who tries to violate those property rights. So there's a whole sort of underpinning um, set of institutional arrangements that, that we rely upon that government has to deliver on and has to build the capacity to deliver on if you're going to have an, a viable market economy. So we call that um, legal capacity. And then the third is the capacity of the state to deliver um, goods and services to its citizens where markets don't do so effectively. Um, and you know, education is a universal example, I would say healthcare is a close to universal example, but again, we're sitting here in the US where I know that's contestable whether a more market-based healthcare system is to be favored over a more state-centered one. But I would argue that most of the lessons tell us that a more state-oriented approach to provision of healthcare in terms of delivering for citizens has a lot of merits. Um, so again, though, you don't, you, you need to build the capacity and structures to deliver that system. So I would say ultimately um, the key, the kind of the key uh, element that allows modern states to deliver is building and investing in state capacity. Um, and of course, the question is why doesn't every state do that? That you have to sort of understand um, 
why, either because of fragmented uh, polities or lack of institutions or other things, but that's another wider conversation. So we were just talking about healthcare. You mentioned this example, and, and very curious about the, how people debate about economic issues because it seems that um, there's always quantitative empirical analysis, and there's also the social discourse that people just feel like, oh, I, I feel like I align with Bernie. I feel like uh, healthcare is this and that. How do you reconcile the sort of the tension between this thing? Because, for example, you wrote this uh, article a while ago that um, studied gender quotas mm -hmm. in politics. And you said, uh, common to other sort of criticism and misconception, uh, gender quotas actually increase the competence of politicians by leading uh, to the displacement of mediocre men. But, mm -hmm. but I guess even if you take this evidence-based study and you tell the public Many of them will be like, I don't believe this. I, I just feel like there should be more women or, or less women or whatever, right? So how, how, I'm very curious to, to, to hear your thoughts on this as a, not just as a political theorist, not just as an economist, but also um, as a scholar. How do you reconcile those things? Yeah, well, so, so what I don't want to be dismissive of, um, which I think is easy to be dismissive of, is any um, use of emotion in relation to political preference. <laughs> I say that because... Again, it comes if I come back to my Brexit example, you might say that this was an ultimate um, uh, put down to the uh, supposedly educated expert classes. All the economists were calling it more or less one way, saying, you know, you don't want to erect trade barriers with your major trading partner, blah, blah, blah. Yet for, the, for most people, that, that was just not the way they were thinking about it emotively. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing they, you know, so the slogan that, that won Brexit was this thing called take back control. Uh, a lot of people said, you know, we have ceded political authority to Brussels. Um, we want that political authority to revert to Westminster, back to London. And take back control was a kind of emotive way of stating that and was obviously highly resonant for large numbers of people. And, you know, I could sit here and just say, oh, that just shows that, you know, most people are... Uh, are incredibly uh, ill-advised, they're emotional, they don't listen to reason, but but uh, I think that's a very dangerous place to go. Um, you know, we, we wouldn't be human if we were not ourselves subject to emotional reasoning. Now, that doesn't mean as an analyst of a problem that I have to um, pull back from producing what I would regard to be the best analytical approach to a given issue. So if you take you know, the work we did on gender quotas, which was quite specific in that what we, we did in that paper. I mean, that got, paper got quite a lot of coverage, which I'm pleased about. <laughs> but I'm pleased also that what the argument that we used there had not really been recognized before. So there's a genuine analytical contribution, which is that you have to, and I'm going to use a bit of economics jargon here, so forgive me, but you, you have to think about gender quotas in what I would call an equilibrium framework. What do I mean by that? is most people think of gender quotas as just changing the proportions of people that represent. So if I say you have to have 50% women, then there's 50% women, end of story. That may have an impact. Of course, if women have different policy preferences than men, then that's going to change things. But what we said is actually that's only a piece of the story. You have to think about how political elites and others will respond to that. And that's what I mean by an equilibrium story. You want to look at the indirect responses to that. And we argued that this would fundamentally change the balance of power between mainly male entrenched political elites and now a larger proportion of women in the political class. And this wouldn't just have an impact on um, 
on the proportion of women, but would also affect the nature of the political selection process, including the quality of men who are selected and, in fact, the displacement of incompetent male political elites. And we were able to trace through in that work these other channels, which were, I think, had been largely missed in any previous analysis, partly because you know, we, we think that way as economists, often political scientists, it's a less natural way to think, but also, um, uh, we we felt that was a, a, a an important set of effects of having a gender quota. So so we did a piece of analytical work. We produced some evidence. Um, it won't stop people exactly like you say, Tiger, um, still having a very emotive reaction to this and saying it's just about you know some uh, uh, notion of fairness. You know you, you, whether a gender quota ever displaced mediocre men. Is, is not the point. The point is there should be 50-50 representation between men and women. That's just a value that we should adhere to. Forget the consequences of that. Um, but I do think it's still valuable to do analytical work that tries to tease out the implications of things. And I do think it contributes to the debate, even if ultimately the emotional factors do play a big role in actually what happens. But you know, the, 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 I think it would, be, it would be very dangerous if we just said, therefore, we're not going to try and engage as analysts in this. And I think there's some long-term value too. I mean, if you, if you do a more analytical approach to something, you may, you may not at first pass have much influence. But over time, you know, people may begin to think differently as a consequence of that, if you're fortunate. I mean, it doesn't, there's no guarantee that's true, but um, I still think there's a valuable role for analytical policy work. So it's always going to be a push and pull between, because emotions will always exist and people always uh, react on things not just based on facts. Um, but you also got the evidence-based approaches. And, and so, you, so you can't expect people to say, uh, why don't you just read the fine prints? Why, why don't you just read the, this report? Like, and, then, and then you'll agree with me. So, so that's a little bit arrogant for, for people to, to assume. I, I, I completely agree. And I, don't, I, I, I certainly don't think that we, we want everybody you know, to have an effective um, political community. Not everyone needs to be trained in analytical science, social science, just to know how to vote. Um, we want a system that's robust. And part of the robustness is going to be that, you know, we have to accept that a lot of voting will be emotive. So we have to think, how do we build structures that mean that we can still do sensible policy um, and uh, and guarantee that, that um, what evidence there is, is brought to bear. I mean, it doesn't mean every time it'll go on the evidence, not on the emotions, but we keep putting out uh, the evidence and trying to remind people of what it says. Uh, so, so your first job was an assistant professor here at Princeton in the economics department at Woodrow Wilson School. And then you became a professor at LSE. You are currently on the board of several distinguished journals. You teach and mentor students. You uh, are a consultant to international organizations like the World Bank, and you uh, serve in the British government. So you have such a wide range of experiences across so many different places. Um, do you sense that policymakers, academia across the US or the UK often have a disconnect when it comes to their perspectives uh, looking at certain issues like development, that uh, the policymakers are doing their thing, the academia are doing their thing, even the US and UK scholars are doing their own things? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that, that that's right. I, I guess the way I think of this uh, and, and the role I've been able to play is academics are sort of part of civil society. You know, we don't make decisions, in many cases quite rightly, because the decisions are very complex and involve expertise that we may not have. 
Um, but by and large, we play a role of trying to put on the agenda things that people may not have thought about or they have only crude ways of thinking about it. And we may bring, bring ways uh, to think about it that are useful in refining the kinds of policy debates that happen. Um, I think having a range of experience, both by country, is useful because it is amazing when you know, so if I look at the work of the National Infrastructure Commission, which I sit on, it's very useful to see how infrastructure decisions are made in other countries and to try and import that experience. So it's very, I think it, it's important not to become too much of a prisoner to, to one perspective and to try and learn from as many different perspectives. Of course, at the end of the day, you have to make your own mind up. You can't just uh, cycle between lots of different views. You do have to try and come to a conclusion and be willing to argue for that conclusion. Otherwise, you're not much use in the policy process. At the end of the day, Someone who, you know, the famous quote about, you know, bring me a one-handed economist because, you know, they're always saying one hand, this one hand, that. I don't think you're much use if you, if, you, if you just say it's all very difficult and it could be this or it could be that. And one of the hardest things, um, at least I faced as I became an economist, was actually trying to say, okay, the world is very messy. Um, the evidence is very messy and mixed. But actually, I do believe X, or I do believe Y, and I'm willing to argue for it, because, and I'm being willing to give you a reason why I'm willing to argue for it. Uh, but that's a very difficult transition to make, um, and still feel like you're being moderately true to um, the world of academia, where everything is very difficult and messy. Uh, and and, and uh, I think the experience I had com both coming here and, and, and returning all contributed to me trying to figure out if I believed in anything. And when I eventually figure out I do believe in stuff, then I'm willing to argue for it. So just one of the last quick questions about what you believe in, what would be one contrarian view that you have that other people might disagree with you about? Is there um, anything on top okay, of Okay, well, let, let me give you a really contrarian view, which actually <laughs> will surface a little bit in the state fragility lecture I give on Thursday. Um, it's... It, it's sort of the downplaying the importance of elections, okay? So when we think democracy, most people think elections straight away. Um, I've come to the view that elections are important, don't get me wrong, they're a key part of democratic process, but they are not the pivotal part. The pivotal part of democratic process is how we constrain executive power. What do legislators do? They get elected, of course, but what they're relied upon to do is to try and constrain the excesses of the executive. What do courts do? Similarly, their job is to provide a framework of rules and to try and get politics and economics to play by those rules. All of those constraints we place on the exercise of power, in my view, are way more important than the process and conduct of elections. And in fact, um, elections can be a deeply divisive thing. I mean, we had a referendum in the UK that led to Brexit. It's probably been the most divisive thing that's happened in our society for a very long time. It was the product of what people would say would be the ultimate form of democracy in this naive view, which is you should vote on everything, particularly big policy issues. Well, I think that's a manifestation of the, da of the dangers of thinking of elections as the be-all and end-all of democracy. What democracy is about is deliberation and constraint. You need to deliberate issues and you need to establish where public opinion lies, but you need to influence public opinion too. You can't just take it as you find it. You have to bring citizens to a debate and they have to, with free media and other things, engage in the debate and at the end of that debate, we need institutions to make decisions. 
But I would say a contrarian view that I hold quite strongly is that um, making a democratic system work is much, much more than conducting elections. And indeed, elections can sometimes have significant downsides. It doesn't mean we shouldn't hold them, um, but we should be aware of the dangers of um, electoral democracy. Um, and, uh, and I guess that in some, in some societies would be viewed as a, as a dangerous uh, view to have. Uh, it's the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline, so I have to ask you at the very end of our show, what's the punchline here for, for state fertility, for development, for our society, anything? <laughs> uh, so the, uh, well, I, if, the, if there's a punchline, um, it's that you know, to create effective human societies and to promote well-being, we need effective states. And to have effective states, we need to build those institutions that constrain power to a point where we create a safe space for state effectiveness to operate. Thank you so much for that wonderful message. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Besley. Thank you very much. And that was our interview with Professor Tim Besley from the London School of Economics. Um, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, and even Twitter at Policy Punchline, or visit us at policypunchline.com for more information. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.